Mark 12, if that's where we're going to be, or else it's going to be in Romans and Isaiah, which is a nice place to be, both of those places. But uh, remember, going through Mark, um, one of the main things we're trying to figure out, along with the apostles and maybe everybody else, is who Jesus is. That's what the Gospels are for, obviously. And uh, sometimes we have parables that help us mostly with the kingdom of God, but given that Jesus already has been called the king, uh, a triumphal entry, knowing about the king will help us understand the kingdom that he rules. So here we have him speaking to them in parables, and he's going to expose those opposed him. That We found out that people kind of rejected him already, but they can't figure out a way to get rid of him yet. Um, this is the last week of his life, um, but he tells them a parable here that's so plain that even the priest could see the meaning, I think. Um, so the parables, remember, were given uh, mostly to be a bit hidden. You know, I, don't, I think we don't like that, uh, but it doesn't really make any difference if you like it. Is it true? You've got to work at these sometimes, and a lot of these parables don't make a lot of sense until after the crucifixion. Um, so as we look into these, uh, remember that we can, should be able to figure out what they mean because we do have the crucifixion and the resurrection and the spirit and the rest of, this of the New Testament. Um, but I think this one is pretty pointed. It says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. I don't know why that always reminds me of the Three Stooges. But um, anyway, struck him on the head must have a different meaning in, in Greek. Um, verse 5, and he said to another, and him they killed... And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Geniuses. So they left him and went away. They did figure it out that this was essentially against them. Um, and why? Well, these were... If you go back a couple, almost a whole chapter, we figure out that these are, these are the chief scribes and elders and, and probably some Pharisees are in here. This is the leaders. He's at Jerusalem. He's the Jerusalem leadership. That's who the they is here. Um, they would have understood what the vineyard was. Remember last week we had the, the, the fig tree, and that's a, one of the ways that uh, the, the, the prophets would talk about Israel. But so is the vine. So is the the vineyard, and you can find that if you go to Isaiah 5, which I'm going to turn to, because this is in the background, and it's interesting. Isaiah 5 um, is pretty much all judgment. It's a poem, 
but it says, verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. You know, vineyard is a, you see this in Isaiah, you see it in other places, is a metaphor for God's people in the Old Testament that would be obviously Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. Everything's starting good. Um, He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out the wine vat in it. And he lucked for it to yield grapes. And that's what God did. He lucked for it to yield grapes. Remember Jesus said a tree is judged by its fruit? He gets that from here too. Um, It's supposed to have the grapes that are useful, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. So this is in the background here as we look at this. Eventually he's going to do that. He's saying that you get the details here of the owner's loving care. It comes from the Old Testament. You know, he sets this vineyard up. It's in the background. But look what happens if it doesn't, the fruit doesn't come. Judgment, you know. And that's what Isaiah is all about. It's what most of the prophets are all about. I think I've said that before. You know, very few prophets come on the scene and say, hey, y'all doing really good. Good job. Just wanted to come and give you a fist bump. You know, they come because there's, there, there's a problem with the hearts of the people, and especially the leadership. And so... The prophets were often seen as servants of God, and that's why he's using this. The servants come. So what's he talking about? He's talking about that all these prophets, most of them were rejected by the leadership of Israel. You know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. You know, you get all these. uh, Jeremiah wasn't the weeping prophet because they treated him well. You know, there's all these people. They're always against him. Amos is a big one that gets always, they're trying to get rid of him all the time. Because they don't want to to hear this. And so when we come to this, they know who they're they're talking about. But then he throws in a twist. The sun comes. Hmm. The sun. What about this much-loved sun? Now, those who remember, and some of them listening, even though he's talking mostly to the Jewish leadership, you know who's there. The 12 are there, right? And probably some other people who did follow him. Well, some of them were probably there during his baptism. And what happened at his baptism? You know, the son, you know, this is my son. And then you've got three of them that were there at the transfiguration, and they heard that this was his son. So this is something a little bit different. Jesus does that. He starts in the Old Testament, but he shows that he's a fulfillment of what's, what's to come. So... Probably even the priest realized that it was a claim by Jesus to be the Son of God. And the reason I think that is because they use this claim in his trial. They say, you said you were this. So they, they get it. They get that he's saying. Now, again, what are we doing in Mark? We're trying to figure out who Jesus is. We started out, he was a good teacher, definitely a healer. Found out he was, a, it looked like he was a prophet. And then they start saying he's the Messiah, and that's kind of where they are now. We're trying to figure out what type of Messiah. They, you know, they did the palm branch thing and brought him in and Hosanna. But there, we talked about perhaps their idea of what the Messiah has come to do is different. But now he's calling himself the son of God. That's a little bit bigger. So in this story, the son was killed. 
This is the cost of God's kingdom. That's what we find out. But the warning is the main point of the parable. In verse 9, it's the same warning that you have in Isaiah 5. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So those who reject the king would themselves be rejected. You know, I, I, it's interesting in, in the gospel that's preached today, this is often left out. It's, you know, I, I think it's, it's great to preach that God loves us and has a prime for our life, and that's all true. But why do you need the cross if you're not in a position of enmity before God? Why do you need to be asked for forgiveness and repentance if you're good? And why would God send his son to die on a cross if you already have a connection with him? Each one of you who know God know that in your heart you're not worthy. You know, nobody's worthy, right? That's the key. Once you figure out you're not worthy, now you're there. He makes us worthy, and he is worthy. We find that out in the book of Revelation. So their privileged position would be taken away and given to others. Um, Mark's readers, which would have probably been in the 50s, um, probably in the Roman area, uh, Rome area, would have recognized the fulfillment of Jesus' words in the church, that Gentiles and Jews who believed in Jesus now are the vineyard. You see this back both in, in Romans, and you see this in the upper room discourse where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's chapter 15. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. So this neglected stone, this is interesting. We had, if you remember Psalm 118, we hit that really hard during the triumphal entry. That's, what's, that's, that's what they're singing. They sing these psalms of ascent when they go to the end, and that's what they're singing when he comes in. And if you, if you look at Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is God doing this. Now, if you want to go to the next two verses, this is the day of the Lord, and we shall be glad in it, right? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what comes next. But Jesus uses this, it's a prophecy in some ways about the Messiah, that they're going to reject him. We see it obviously in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and a number of other places in the prophetic writings. So this is the irony in Jesus' suggestion that the priests did not know that the very scriptures of which they boasted. They were supposed to be the scribes. When it says scribes, it doesn't mean people just take dictation. It's people who understood the law. And they understood, they had this verse too. I wonder if they went back and tried to study this. Looks like they just tried to go back and figure out how they could kill him. <laughs> they wanted to arrest him, but they wouldn't because of the people. They were afraid. The people still saw him in a popular way. And they were completely, it, it's so interesting how blind we can be sometimes. We, and I suppose we do this sometimes ourselves. We look at other people and say, well, how bad they are. And maybe they are really bad. And sometimes if, we, if this was a karma religion where you just, if you could be better than other people, then maybe you are better than some other people. But that's not the religion, right? It's like we all fall short of the glory of God. And these people, it's like he just gave this parable that was almost, you know, verbatim out of the Old Testament. Almost every time I sent one of my prophets to you, you killed him or stoned him or persecuted him. And here I come, and what are you doing? Now you're trying to kill me. How ironic. Now, what's cool, 
and a lot of it's cool, but what's really cool is in Acts, we find out that some of these very people came to faith. That even these guys, you see the priests in chapter 5, you see Pharisees that become Christians in chapter 15. Um, so they're not, just because they even killed the Lord of glory, as Peter said in chapter 2 in his great sermon, but yet grace is still open to you. That's always the good news. The bad news is you're going to live a life, an eternal life, away from Yahweh if you don't go through this son. The good news is you'll live a life with him if you go through him. It doesn't really seem like that hard of a choice to me, but that's what it's, what's out there. So this gives us a little bit more. Jesus pushes it. He's done it already, but here he's pushing even farther into I am the son of God, and we're going to get that at the trial. It really comes down to this. Jesus thinks he's Yahweh. <laughs> and, and that's true today. Do you think he is too? You know, it's like Jesus kind of says, you know, what I have told you is true, whether you believe it or not, is up to you. I mean, I can give some really good sermons. I can give some really duds. But, you know, you hope the words are true, but I can't make you believe anything. Can I? That's up to you and God. But you want to get the truth out there. To tell you that you're, you're already pretty good and you can be a little bit better if you had Jesus. Jesus just kind of like gives the, makes the turkey taste a little bit better. And I, Jesus does make the turkey taste a little bit better. But that's not the main thing, is it? I mean, it's, we're completely lost without him. And that's hard in our pluralistic society, isn't it? Nobody likes to hear that. that. And, and people say, well, you, get, you know, I've heard that before. They say, well, you guys think you're right. And I'm like, well, duh. Why would I say stuff I thought was wrong? And, and again, it's not arrogant, is it? Are we saying we're so good because we follow Jesus? Or are we saying Jesus is so good because so he grabbed us? Well, there's a big difference between those two. I love it. We had that earlier with, with uh, Peter. What was his reaction when he really realized who was in front of him after the great catch of fish? Was it like, I must be pretty cool because you just got me all these fish. You know, get away from me, I'm a sinful. He understood his unworthiness. But then Jesus says, you know, stand up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you. And he does that to all of us. So then paying taxes. I should have done this in April. Um, so they're going to try to, you know, it's kind of like they're all sitting there. And it's like, well, we tried. I don't know. You, you guys want to give it a shot? Um, so they get the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now these are uh, people who would be uh, sympathetic to Herod as a ruler uh, to trap him in his talk. So we know from Mark's writing and that they're trying to trap him. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Little jam on the bread, as they say, right? For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So at that, and I actually, I, I didn't steal this. Uh, one of the kids brought it and I thought, hey, it'd be kind of cool. It's a dime. I don't even know who's on a dime. Is it Kennedy? It's not Tiberius. It would have been back then. Um, so he, they bring out a coin. Now, who's, 
whose image is on this? You know, look at it. Who's, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. So they got him, right? Because if he says, what's going to happen? If he says that you should pay the taxes, then the Jews are going to be mad at him. And if he says you're not, the Romans are going to be mad at him. So they got him. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And they tucked their tails between their legs and went right back. And but they keep going. They're going to get more next week. But, but this, this is a good thing to think about. We have paying twice. The question was asked by Jesus. who had, They'd already rejected him. They wanted to trap him. They, think, they thought they had him. And this was, a good, this was good. But I told you before, and you know it, that Jesus is the smartest person that ever lived. And he gets it. He's got him. He's just, it, I love this. I love this about him, among other things. What's the dilemma? Again, he's going to be in trouble no matter which way he goes. But Jesus uses an interesting word here when he says render. It's to give back, apodidomai, to, to pay back. The implication is it's right to pay government for what it offers that a citizen cannot provide for themselves. In, in our culture, we get, I think, quite unchristian about paying taxes. As if, you know, well, the government, you know, people say that. It's like, you're the government genius. I, I saw the Constitution. What's it say? We the people. Yeah. So, but uh, again, the idea is that, well, think about what, just getting here today. I was going to put that in my pocket. I'll put it in the collection plate later. But yeah, I've had that happen to me all the time. That You guys trust me, thanks, but... It's like somebody will hand me like 50 bucks. They put this in the plate. And I'm like, I could go to Subway with this. I mean, what are you giving it to me for? But I guess it's trust. Uh, but if you, if, you th if you think about this, you know, paying taxes, you got here a certain way, right? You got here on roads. Did you pay for the roads? Yep. <laughs> I was just going to say, are you understanding this stuff? We the people. But you didn't pay for all of the road, right? Um, Again, when we, we're looking at this, you think about the way, way he's going with this. It means if we enjoy the benefits of the state, we should pay the price. I mean, you think about it when the Pax Romana was going on, or the Peace of Rome. And so Paul is a, and Barnabas at first, and then eventually Silas and Mark and Luke and Timothy and Titus and all these guys, they go on these great roads to all these places to tell the gospel. If they'd have come about 50 years earlier than that, there wouldn't have been any roads to go on. Rome built all those. Now, I'm not saying, well, you all know people love Matthew for being a tax collector, right? I'm not saying there wasn't a corrupt system, but what does the Bible say about this? Well, you all want to know that. Let's go to Romans chapter 13. It gives you a really... Good. And this is in the background. Uh, Jesus' uh, talk with them is in the background. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So this, it's, you know, again, never read a Bible. We're going to keep reading. But what is this book called that we're in? Romans. So it was probably written to whom? Roman Christians who lived where? Rome. 
is saying. <laughs> like, you know, for rulers, and four and five, are, or three and four is so helpful. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you may also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, and respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So this is what he's writing, what Paul writes to the Romans, but what's the key here? Because people have used this. You could say you could have an oppressive government that says we're Christian and say, well, you got to follow up. I don't know if you knew this, but the, you had some of this in Germany back in before World War II, but well, we're the leaders, and God said you're supposed to follow us. But what's implied in the middle of this? That the state is going to punish evil and reward good. Who gets to decide what's evil and good? Not the state. Not ultimately. Render unto God what is God's. And, and that's the thing. And the whole conscience comes in. But he... He doesn't discuss, this is what's interesting about Jesus, he never discusses the current Roman government and whether it's ju just or unjust. And neither does Paul, neither does John. Why? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> but apparently not primary for him, right? When do you know when to follow what the government says and when not to? It's a good question, isn't it? Render under God what is God, and Caesar what is Caesar. So there's, that's the way we are here. You know, back in the Old Testament is what we call theocracy, theocratic. What does that mean? Well, the, the, the religion of Israel, the Jewish or the Hebrew religion, was also the religion of the king. And even though you kind of had, you, you had the, the governing authorities in the religion, we're all together. We've got now most Islamic uh, states are that way, if you want a picture of that. That's not the way the, the New Testament sets up things. Now we got a multi-ethnic people who are part of what's called the church, whose job is it to make disciples and follow Christ as the number one thing, citizens of heaven, as it's put by Paul. But you have a governing authority too. And why are they put there? Well, we just read it. To punish evil and reward good. So what happens when you're a Christian in a country that punishes good and rewards evil, do you follow it? Well, you can go people back like, like the Bonhoeffer and some of those people who said, we can't do this. Romans 13 implies that these people honor God and follow him. And they're not doing that. So with conscience, and that's the thing that's there, we've got to remember that. God put them there, but sometimes they don't act. I mean, you can go back to the Old Testament and look at that. Remember, if you were in my Bible study, we went through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and in the middle of that, um, eventually Solomon dies, and you get the split kingdom. You get Israel, and which is very confusing, I realize, but Israel splits into Israel and Judah. I didn't come up with the name. 
But the Judean kings, you had some decent ones, Josiah, Hezekiah. In the north, they were all bad, every one of them. It was just a, and then they got knocked off in 721. It was B.C., another 140 years before the, north, the southern tribes. But think about that. God put them there, but Romans 13 doesn't imply they're doing what God wants. That's the thing. If we, we must give Caesar what is his, then we must give God what is his too. So this was written to a church that was probably somewhat getting persecuted already. We think this, that, that Romans 13 was probably written during Nero's reign. So it's almost in code, I think. You guys got to make a decision. What was the thing that they always said? We, we say it now. Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. What did you say in Nero's time? Caesar is Lord. And in the second half of Nero's reign, what happened if you said Jesus is Lord? You get killed. Think about that when you read Romans 10. We miss that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is you're putting him first and you'll probably get killed. It's not just saying something after your baptism. This is giving your life, as Bonhoeffer said, when God calls a person, he calls them to come and die. You know, I, I, I always think about, I don't know if you do that, but I think about if I went back to that time and I had to, you know, either say Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord, and you're saying, you know, right now, oh, Jesus is Lord, but this, if there's a sword there, I am. I always said, I'm not really that afraid of death. I just don't want it to hurt. It's easy to say, you know, again, hopefully God would give us the things to say, but that's the idea. This is going to have a deeper meaning to somebody who's getting persecuted by the Roman. What's implied in there? The idea that if Caesar asked for what belongs to God, not to Caesar, they could not give it for conscience sake. It's right in Romans 13. Conscience. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. So if your conscience isn't clear submitting to them, then you can't. I mean, that's implied there. I hope that helps. But Jesus doesn't, obviously he's not overly concerned with the political systems of the day, although he is concerned, I think, to some extent. He calls them to task. He's concerned with much and much more than that. Well, if you think about it, I know this is a little bit cornier, but think about it. You know, this is a math thing. You know, if you think about your existence, we all started, anybody here over 100? So we all started within the last 100 years, right? How long is your existence going to be in the future? Every one of you are going to live forever, right? This all comes down to where that's going to be. If you, the, the, we'll go, we'll just round everybody up to 100. Sorry, kids. Um, 100 years you're here. Your decision about Jesus is going to decide the bulk of your existence. So you, know, you think about that. Again, is it worth it for some Christians dying for refusing to put a pinch of incense in Caesar's statue and say Caesar is Lord? It was worth it to them. You know, sometimes, you, you, as I said, you go over to, I was so impressed, maybe that's the wrong word, but uh, maybe just blessed, listening to the faith of these people in Israel who are Christians. 
I bet 15 times the one guy said that Yeshua is on the throne. We are being attacked. We are losing, some people that we love are losing their lives. Lots of things are going on. There's a lot of turmoil. People want to exterminate us. But Yeshua is on the throne. It almost sounds to this, you know. There's a higher price. There's a, why is it a higher price? Because it's a higher reward. I think Jesus said that earlier, didn't he? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? So in the same way, Christians may suffer in our day. We're seeing it now for refusing to bow before pictures of emperors and dictators and presidents. What a, and we do that during Veterans Day and July 4th and all those. Yes, we should give thanks that we don't have to do that. And I'm no prophet. I don't know if we're ever going to have to. That's up to God, not me. And I'm going to pray that we won't have to. But along with that, I pray that we'll get closer and closer to God. The churches that are growing the most in, in, across the world are the ones that are being persecuted the most. I pray that we can become closer to God and maybe not get persecuted, just realize our sin. I think God would like that. It really comes down to worship. When you say Caesar is Lord, you're worshiping. It's idolatry. You know, we were set up as a republic where we could worship God and have a government too. And I keep praying that's going to work out. We have people in our own midst, and those of you who are politically alive, good for you. Get into it. Try to make it look more like God wants. I think that's a privilege that we have. Not everybody has that privilege. Some of you may think about politics, and it makes you throw up. I realize that. Well, then don't do it, that part. But pray for those who are in it. Because people, some people have a mandate to do that. But again, does it line up with what, and what's more important, following the state or following Jesus? It's always following Jesus. It's not that hard, right? But back to this, the Jewish leaders, they've rejected Jesus and they continue to try to trap him to get him executed. I mean, that's just amazing. It's one thing to say, I don't, you know, Jesus annoys me. And there are days when he annoys me, when I'm right and I think he's wrong, and then I realize that's stupid because he's God. He's always right. You ever done that when you pray? Well, God, I don't think you're seeing it the way it really is. It's like, oh, sheesh. Got to remember who you're talking to, right? So his miracles are done here. He's not going to do anymore. He's going to teach some more about his identity. Truly God, truly man. They're starting to figure that out. About his purpose, his sacrifice for the salvation of all that believe in ultimate judgment for those who reject him. That's the thing. The gospel is sometimes hard to take, but it's not hard to understand. And then ultimately, you've got that, you've got this coin. You know, Caesar's likeness on that ancient coin show, shows who controls the secular world. It's the same here. We don't have any Jesus coins yet. Maybe we shouldn't. If there's anything wrong with putting some dude on a coin. But think about that. His likeness was on the coin because that's what controlled the state. But whose likeness is on you? Whose image were you created in? And who's, who do you want to follow and have in you? That's the key. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And do it in a way that honors God. And pray for our leaders, as Paul says. Yes. And pray for those people who are persecuted, both in our country and in other countries, in some unbelievable ways that they will stay faithful. But remember in your own life, whose image is on you and who do you serve 
as the number one king in your life. Let us pray. Father, such a wonderful parable to tell who you are and then your son being the smartest person in the world is able to avoid another trap that these leaders put out for him. Lord, I pray for each one here. We're in a land, such a blessing to be uh, in the United States and be able to worship here freely and not worry about persecution. Um, I just pray each one here realizes what a privilege it is to be able to worship freely and may we remember that worshiping you is just responding back to what you have revealed. But we do pray for those folks in countries where it's not free to worship. May they stay strong in the faith and put you first. And may we do the same as we live out our days here. We pray in Jesus' name.